Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet on Sundays at 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, who doesn't? You can select Beacon Church of Long Island as a supporting organization and a small portion of every purchase will go to supporting the work at Beacon. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Well, we are so excited to be here at the Viscardi Center. Can you give it up again for our hosts who have uh, allowed us to be here? Some of you will meet Theo at some point in uh, your travels around. Theo is uh, the facilities manager here. I was supposed to find out between the first and the second service if he was a guy who would be offended by hugs and kisses, but I, I forgot to ask him. So just go ahead and give him hugs and kisses, and uh, we'll hope that, uh, that, he, that he actually is all right with that. Uh, but uh, they have been really, really incredible, and I'd encourage you to, to add the Viscardi Center and all their staff to uh, your prayer lists. Uh, because they ever, we, since we started to get to know them and the work that they do here, it's really quite uh, an incredible, uh, incredible uh, program that they run here. Uh, I also want to do a couple other quick shout outs before we jump in. There's someone who has uh, not uh, stopped frantically working from the very moment we decided to go portable. And so, uh, could we just say a big thank you to Trevor, who has been <laughs> frantically working. He spent more time on that computer and building stuff than uh, is even imaginable, so thank you so much. And my goodness, the band and the sound team and Chris, they are deploying more technology in the shortest amount of time imaginable than we have ever done before, and they are just crushing it. So let's give it up for, for Chris and for uh, all of the, the team there, and of course for the roadies who made worship here today possible. Uh, we have a debt of gratitude to all of our roadies. Thank you guys so much. And really all of the teams have stepped up in a pretty incredible way. We've got our Kids Quest team and First Impressions, Cafe Crew, the prayer team. All of them have been busy adapting and recruiting and deploying team members. And we even have this uh, still fairly new ministry. It's our team member volunteer care mobilization. That's Maria and Joseph. And so let's just thank them for everything that they are doing, supporting all the teams and all those teams. You guys, you've been amazing. It's been an absolute privilege and a delight to, to be going through this process with all of you. So we're really glad that you are all here for training day three. That's what we're calling this. This is training day three. So if anything happens that wasn't supposed to, we say, it was a training day, relax. Uh, and so, yes, this is training day three, and we're going to have uh, the rest of our trainings on Sundays uh, through October here. And uh, we're going to try to work out all of the kinks uh, and all of that kind of stuff. And then we're going to be launching sort of in a bigger way. Uh, come the first week in November. We're supporting it with a giant mailing and uh, advertising in newspapers and signs and things like that. It'll be a new teaching series for the month of November called Stuck, and it promises to be a really great, uh, a great time for us as a church. 
So we're really glad that you are here, that you're here today, and that you're part of this exciting chapter in the history of Beacon Church. You know, history is uh, a, an incredible teacher for us in so many ways. And you guys know why history is important, right? You flip through a history book, it's because of all of the truly impressive mustaches. That, that's actually why history really matters. And so you should do it. You should pick up a, a you know, this is Joshua Chamberlain. Look at that. I mean, how do you get much better than that? It's like he could just, you know, they, they flip through a history book. You're going to see some of the most impressive uh, facial hair imaginable. Now, he was also a remarkably brave man. He was an officer in the Union Army during the Civil War. And uh, he headed up the 20th Regiment in Maine. And he started out with 385 men many of whom had already died by the time they got to the Battle of Gettysburg. At Gettysburg, their ranks were increasingly decimated by one assault after another, after another, after another of a superior-sized army. But their position was exceedingly important. They were protecting the left flank of the high ground. They were told, if we lose this hill... We may very well lose the battle. Well, he was down to about a hundred men or less and almost no more ammunition. Some uh, historians say that maybe they had a bullet left per person. And the enemy was preparing for yet another charge up the hill. In a desperate situation that looked hopeless, the logical thing would have been to surrender, give up the position, and try to save yourself and your forces. That's not what Chamberlain did. Instead, he gave the order to fix bayonets, and his plan was to charge the enemy, which is exactly what he did. They fixed their bayonets, and they ran headlong down a hill, and they charged two regiments of Alabama soldiers, and they decisively turned the battle. Some historians even say not only did they turn the battle so that, we, that Gettysburg was won, many would say that because Gettysburg was won, the war was won. It goes back to Chamberlain charging down the hill. This little bit of history tells the story of the power of a single life. And many have referenced it throughout our time, reading magazines and articles. They'll reference the story of what one great person could do. But of course, there's so much more in this story than what one man did. There's also the story of 385 individu 358 individual men who actually got Chamberlain to the Battle of Gettysburg, who had fought all of those previous battles. There were the hundred or so individuals who remained, who when given the order to charge into the withering fire of a superior force, did it. Charging down the hill, many of them to their certain death. And what about all of the messengers who kept 
Chamberlain in, informed as to what was going on in the battlefield and where the enemy forces were deployed. What are their names? We haven't even been given them. What about all of the supply line managers who made certain they had everything they needed at every step of the way? What about all the people that prepared their food and the medics who patched them up? All of these countless individuals. Oh, and of course, there's, there's Providence. Some of the historians like to point out that Chamberlain had remarkably good luck. That's what they say, remarkably good luck. Such that even during this battle, that a gun held close to his face misfired. Just what good luck. He was also shot during this battle. The bullet hit him in the, the belt buckle. And he, he survived it. What good luck. Or, of course, the power of the one. See, that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at the story. It is the power of one, one individual, but it's also the power of many individuals working as one. And it is always the story of the power of the one. Stories of bravery can be retold 10 trillion times when you have an historical perspective. But, of course, it's not simply in times of war. There's a single mom who's struggling to raise a family. And no matter what circumstances are thrown her way, she keeps her game face on and keeps her family pressing forward. There's a student who stands up in order to defend the outsider who's being bullied by the insiders, knowing full well that that single act is going to put them on the outs with the popular kids. They do it anyway. There's individuals who quietly work with the most fragile and vulnerable members of society. And they do it all quietly, behind the scenes. I mean, look at this place that we are renting and what it even represents. They've cared for thousands of veterans and children with special needs for many, many years. Dozens of faculty, staff, board members who give sacrificially of themselves to lift others up and to strengthen their community. There are, you know, there are first responders. They're rushing in when everybody else is rushing out. Think about the researcher who says, I am going to find a cure for this disease, even though Big Pharma says, you know, it's, it's not really a profitable pursuit. She says it doesn't matter. It's going to make a difference. History is filled with stories of brave men and women who make a difference. So will the future hold as many stories of bravery as the past? Well, of course it will. You know it will. And many of those stories will be told about the very people who are sitting here in this room. So what stories will be told of you? It's kind of a good question to self-reflect on. To answer that, you have to really know who you are. So who are you? And not like, you know, I'm not talking about like an esoteric sort of sense, like who am I in the universe? That's not what, that's not what I'm talking about, at least not today. And this isn't the really, it's not even the kind of a question that you can answer by, like, if we were like eavesdropping on you talking at a cocktail party, you know, or by perusing your social media. That's not how we find out who you really are. We find out who you really are 
by seeing what you do. That's so important for us to remember. Where do people spend their time? Where do they spend their money? What occupies most of their thoughts? That's who you are. And that's what you love. You can ask yourself that throughout the course of this morning. What, what takes up the bulk of your thought cycles? What's running through your head most of the time? What occupies the majority of your budget, of your finances? What consumes most of your time? We'll be able to see and answer the question of who we are. I think for many of us, the main thing that we think about is what? It's ourselves. The main thing we spend our money on is ourselves. The main thing we spend our time on. And you see, Jesus, he comes on the scene and he says, listen, there's a better way. There's a better way. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. This was a letter. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have an app, uh, we have uh, some Bibles in the back there. The ushers, are uh, they're going to be able to kind of walk down. If you just raise a hand, uh, they can hand out uh, a Bible to you if you don't have one. And uh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible that works for you, that's easy to read, uh, if you don't own one, then this is for you. So you get to keep it. You can bring it back with you next week. And uh, every single week at Beacon, we study God's Word. And so uh, you could bring that Bible back with you as, as, uh, as well. Well, this letter was written by Paul. Now, last week I gave you a little bit of background about Paul. Today I want to give you a little bit of background about Corinth because this is a city that's actually remarkably similar to New York. It's a coastal city in the Mediterranean, and it's located in Greece. And so if you kind of picture the Mediterranean, then you'll, you'll get an idea uh, as to where it is. Kind of move east from Italy there, and you'll find Greece with Corinth kind of smack dab there, kind of toward the bottom uh, a little bit. And uh, this city, this is now we're talking, you know, a couple thousand years ago, they had been defeated by the Romans and then rebuilt by the Romans. And it became one of the jewels of the empire. Because of its particular location, it was quite the crossroads of commerce. It was filled with sailors and craftsmen and retired soldiers who had been relocated there. There were jewelers and there were bankers and there were traders from around the world. There was class tension in Corinth because there were the super wealthy and there were the very, very poor. It was filled with free Roman citizens as well as immigrants from all over the empire. There were talented artists and there were struggling families of every socioeconomic strata. Corinth was a very cosmopolitan city and a lot of new money. And so it, you, you could be very much in the upwardly mobile category. I mean, if you could make it there, you could make it, well, anywhere. Except maybe New York. That, that, might be, that might be a line we'd have to draw. The Corinthians had a willingness to try out 
any new experience that promised some taste of excitement. They were driven by status and prestige, and historians tell us that they had this incredibly indulgent sort of uh, sense of displays of wealth. And they were largely dedicated to their own experiences and, of course, because of that, predictably self-centered. Paul comes on the scene and he wants to break into that culture. And he wants to turn it on its head. And he starts off and he tells them, listen, it doesn't matter to him and it doesn't matter to God if you're a slave or if you're free, if you're a man or if you're a woman, if you're a Roman or if you're a Jew, if you cleaned the latrines or if you ran an international trade guild. Paul tells us that God made certain that every single person was uniquely gifted. Look at verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Jump down to verse 11. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. So every single person is uniquely gifted by God. And if you notice, if you, if, you were, if you kind of read that carefully, you'll see the whole of the Trinity is involved in this. He mentions the Father, He mentions the Son, He mentions the Spirit, because the whole of the Godhead is involved in the distributing of gifts, because it's just how God wanted it. God gave you unique gifts and passions and talents and abilities and, and experiences that will be leveraged for the future. And he wants you to unwrap those gifts. Every single person is equally important to God's work. You're unique, but you are important to the work. Look at verse 16. And if the ear should say, he's kind of using the whole body metaphor here, and he's really kind of making it work on, walk on all fours here. He says, if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I don't, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body. Hear that? God has placed the parts in the body. Every one of them. Every one of you uniquely placed by God exactly where He wants it, just as He wanted them to be. That's what the Scriptures tell us in verse 19. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. You see, this is the power of one being part of a collective whole that is being empowered by God. This is wildly important for us to remember. So we see what it is that, that what, what our place in this whole story is really all about. And you won't often be able to see the ripples of your life and how your, the ripples of your life are going to line up with the ripples of another person's life and another person's life. And in generations to come, it's hard to picture the kind of an impact that you might be able to have. And not just during your life 
but for many years to come. Everybody, most everybody has heard of Billy Graham. Billy Graham is our generation's greatest evangelist. In fact, he was America's pastor and you know, pastor to many, many presidents over many, many decades and uh, arguably the single most influential person to communicate the gospel ever as far as the number of people that he spoke to, that he presented to. Uh, it is almost impossible to even estimate how many millions upon millions and even billions he has impacted. Pretty incredible. So many people will tell you the story of how Billy Graham's ministry has completely changed their lives. What we, what we often don't hear about is Mordecai Ham. Mordecai is actually another evangelist. He used to travel around and kind of uh, tell people about God and invite them to come pursue a life of dedication to Jesus. But apparently he wasn't very good at it. Very few people would respond to Mordecai's messages. And, uh, and uh, one day he was out uh, teaching in North Carolina and uh, most, it wasn't going really well like, like normal for Mordecai. Uh, but, uh, but this day one young lanky man did respond. That was Billy Graham. So in a sense, the ripple of Mordecai's life now extends into Billy Graham's influence. And I'd say that means that Mordecai should get some of the credit for whatever else Billy did and the effectiveness that he brought to the story. Interestingly, Mordecai wasn't even supposed to be there that night. It was actually supposed to be Billy Sunday. He was supposed to be teaching, but he couldn't make one of the nights, so he recommended Mordecai. And that's how, so I guess really Billy should get some, Billy Sunday should get some of the credit for having Mordecai come out to, who, to get us to, to Billy Graham, except it was a group of businessmen who actually brought Billy Sunday out to, to bring him to this conference where he, he was teaching. The, the neat thing there, of course, is we don't even know who these business people were. They're just nameless individuals in history who, who organized this big event. Billy Sunday, some would tell you, was impacted by a man named Wilbur Chapman. Now, I don't, I don't even know who any of these people are. You know, I had to go look him up because Wilbur Chapman is a name I, I don't even know who he is. Who's Wilbur Chapman? Well, who impacted Wilbur Chapman? Well, that, that guy actually was Frederick Meyer, who I also don't know anything about, right? So you got to go Google these guys now and go read about it because they're like, all of these people. Wait, so that means unknown Frederick Meyer actually had an impact that led to Billy Graham, which is pretty cool. The name, though, that, that is kind of it shifts here is D.L. Moody because it was actually D.L. Moody who apparently impacted Meyer. But, but now Moody is known because he's got like a school and a church named after him. So if you ever go to Chicago, like you, may, you might have heard of D.L. Moody. So some people have heard uh, of Dwight. Interesting to find out who impacted Dwight. I found it interesting because it was a man named Edward Kimball. And of course, I don't know who Edward is either. <laughs> Except that I was told that Edward was his Sunday school teacher who took an incredible interest in every one of the kids in the class. I think he even went to go meet Dwight while he was working as like a shoe salesman or something as a young man to try to tell him about the love of Jesus. So from my reckoning, I think Kimball gets a whole lot of credit for Billy Graham if you chase the line right through it. Because you're never going to know where the ripples of your life will intersect with the ripples of another person's life and where those ripples will continue to build and crest and interact with other people's ripples. See, God doesn't weigh 
the importance of people based on how much or how many or status or reputation or formal accolades. Upfront people don't impress God. People who talk a good game, they don't impress God. Wealthy people who can dump piles and piles of money on good causes, they don't impress the God who has the cattle on a thousand hills. Every single person is equally important to God's work, and God takes delight in those that do what they were made to do. If you are afoot, then walk. That's what, the, that's what he's telling us with that metaphor. If you're an ear, then listen. If you're an eye, then see. If you're a nose, then smell. I mean, don't, you don't, not, like, don't be smelly, because that's like a whole other, it's like adjective, it's like don't do that thing. But, but like if you're a nose, do what you were made to do. And every single one of us, we have unique gifts that God weighs as equally important if, and this, this is the big if, if we use our gifts for the common good. If we use them. Look, look at verse 7. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So what does Paul mean when he speaks of this common good? Well, throughout the letter, he has been talking about living your life for the good of your spiritual family to make certain that the church is as strong as the church can possibly be. That's certainly one part of what he means for the common good. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 33, I'll put it on the screen. He said, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. This is still Paul, the good of many so that they may be saved. For the common good for the common good for Paul also has to do with salvation. Has to do with people who are far from God finding eternal life. It is always salvation is always a part of the common good that we are doing in this world. To let people know of the promise of Jesus Christ who died for their sins upon the cross to save us from our sins. And to let them know that Jesus is alive today, having resurrected from the dead. I mean, that's what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. We come to the Eucharist and we are commemorating that moment in history. That's the common good. And there's also a whole other track that Paul gives us. It's the social dimension of common good. I won't have you turn there. This is in Romans. But he lists ways that we ought to live for the good of society. And he gives us a few examples. He says, be faithful in prayer. Share with people in need. Open up your homes. Bless those who torment you. Mourn with those who are hurting. Live in harmony with everyone. I like the way he throws those extras in there. With everyone. Don't be proud. Good. All right. Instead, be friends with people who don't matter to society. Honor the government. <laughs> Some of you are like, now he's gone too far. Yes. That's what it feels like. This is what Paul tells us. Live for the common good. He says, never repay evil for evil. Don't take revenge. Give your enemy what they need. Defeat evil with the goodness of your life. And let no debt 
remain outstanding but one. But one. The debt to love each other. See, this is the common good. The common good for the strengthening of the church that will stand as a pathway back to God. The common good to bring the mission of God for the salvation of the world, the message of Christ to the world, and the common good that meets the needs of the world all around us. The fight for justice. And Beacon is here to equip each and every one of us to continue to live for the common good. Now, historically, you can think of, there are kind of like three major strands of Christianity that at different times have sort of taken center stage or prominence in Christian circles. This is like a gross oversimplification, but I think it will prove helpful. There is the group I'm calling the Fundagelicals. The Fundagelicals, all right? I, I smashed up fundamentalists and evangelicals. I kind of mashed them together here. And uh, don't, by the way, don't use this word anywhere else because it's like it's made up and fake. And so if you go out there, you're like, you know, the fundagelicals, and they're going to be like, uh, no, that's not real. You're going to be like, no, no, it's real. I heard it on Sunday. Robert said it. it's not real. I just made it up. But it captures an idea. It captures a group, a, a, a strand of Christianity. They are really big and good at theology. That's a good thing. They're good at biblical theology, and they take it very serious. That's the good side. That's the good part. They're also usually more politically conservative. They're often seen as harsh, critical, and judgmental. These churches, by the way, are often holding their own in society, and many of them are even growing just a little bit. There's another strand, which are the mainline churches. The mainline churches have always championed social justice, and they've done great things in the name of of social justice. That was a, a huge, strong part of that whole strand. But they've become ecumenical in the worst sense of that word. They have no real sense of needing personal conversion or of surrendering to Jesus and Him alone. To them, biblical theology isn't really important. In fact, many of them outright deny Jesus. Usually more left-leaning, as far as their political uh, direction. And most of these churches are, in fact, dying. Most are in decline. And researchers say that probably 30, 40, 50 years at the latest, the majority of those denominations and churches will be closed. They will fail. Then there's a third strand I'm calling the postmodern pietists. And uh, for them, this is kind of an eclectic group, and, and maybe I'm just jumping too many into one category, but I think there are some very significant parallels. There's a spiritual experience that is of the utmost importance for them. And they really emphasize the personal conversion experience, that every single person needs to make a solid commitment to follow Jesus and experience Him and worship God. But now you throw in a little bit of postmodernism, and you take some of the emergent uh, church ideas and philosophies and you sprinkle in a little bit of the piety that sort of took root in Europe that was birthed in like the 1600s, a little bit of social justice sprinkled in there. The theology for the postmodern pietists is important, but 
they're open to other views and they are resistant to being dogmatic and that openness in theology is actually quite troubling. Beacon sits at the intersection of these strands of Christianity. We don't adhere to one political party. We've got people from every uh, different political party imaginable represented here at Beacon. We're not going to disregard the Bible. We're going to take the teachings of God seriously. We really do believe the scriptures are his word and that they have the power to change life. And we also hold the importance of every single Christ follower fighting for social justice. That we have to get out in the world and do what we ought to be doing to help the people who are hurting, to help the society that is in need, and to stand against the injustice that is so easy to see all around us. We also hold to a deep experience, the conversion experience, that every single person, no one is born a follower of Jesus, that every single person needs to come to a place, a decision in their own life where they will choose to follow or reject Christ. It's a personal conversion and a spiritual experience. We take all of these things together and we hold them as the common good. And that's what we fight for. So here's the thing. Beacon, as a church family, we have continued to grow from the very first day that we started the church some 13, 14 years ago. God told us to go and do this thing, and of course, we've been doing it ever since. And as it's continued to grow, we step back sometimes and we go, you know, that's a remarkable thing just in and of itself. In a day and age when so many churches and houses of worship throughout our area are in decline, you want to stop, you want to stop sometimes and just say, I wonder what's going on. Why? Why does God continue to bless the work? And I think it has something to do with the commitment to mobilize every single follower of Jesus to work for the common good, to do the very thing that he has asked us to do. Now, why are we willing to go portable? All of the expense, the cost, the hard work, commitment, why? No, well, we knew we wanted to make more room. Well, why? It's not about numbers. It's not about trying to to grow and get bigger for, for the sake of reputation or status. There's one simple reason why we are always looking to grow. Because there are people who need to hear about Jesus. And every time another person decides to commit themselves to his way, we've come a little bit closer to fulfilling our calling. There are still kids who don't know the fantastic plans that God has for them. No one has yet been able to tell them. There are still young people who are trying to figure out what their place is in God's grand narrative. Where do they fit in? We're here to help, help them see that, to discover it. There are older people who have been turned off of church maybe decades ago. Some bad experience, some sense of irrelevancy, and they've never come back. And with that, 
They've moved away from God and Christ. But maybe God is starting to do something in their hearts now. Maybe there's a little sense, a small touch, a spiritual awakening. Maybe they're looking now for a fresh experience of God's grace, and we get to be a part of that story with all of them. You are a part of that story because you have been uniquely designed by God to play an important role in living for the common good according to God's plan. And Jesus showed us the way, the power of one life. It's an older story now, and I love it. I've, I've shared it with you guys over the past, uh, in, in the past, and maybe it's a little dated and all that, but I still love it. And I have personally, I'm kind of sentimental about it, and it's personally been a big part of my own uh, experience and evaluation of what God has done in my life. And uh, through my work and efforts and ministry and all that kind of stuff, it's the story, remember the starfish story. So there's the young man, he's walking down the beach, it's after a storm. Starfish are just all over the beach. And uh, he's walking down, every time he finds a starfish, he bends down, he picks it up, and he whips it back into the ocean. And he's just doing this over and over and over again, a dozen, a hundred, hundreds of times. And uh, there's a, an older woman sitting up on the beach, and she sort of sees him doing this, and he's working his way down the beach, and she just can't resist it when he finally gets over to where she is sitting, and she says, hey, so what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm, I'm throwing the starfish back in the ocean. She's like, I, I, I know that. He's like, well, because if I, if I don't, they're going to die. I mean, the sun's coming out. They're going to dry out here, and, and the starfish will die. So I'm just I'm throwing them back in the ocean so they will live. And she goes, yeah, I, I see that, but, the, but why? Like, I mean, there are thousands of starfish all over this beach, and there are countless thousands of miles of beach. What difference does it make? And the young man, he bends down, he picks up a starfish, and he whips it into the ocean, and he says, well, it made a difference to that one. It made a difference to that one and the other one. And every other one he helped. And when you think about the ripples of your life, the difference you can make to that one, what one person can do, the Son of God, Christ, came. And because of his death, one man, the God-man, secured for us eternal life, the ability to be with God for all of time, the forgiveness of our sins, breaking the power of rebellion in our hearts. His resurrection secured for us the power to have transformed lives here, to see culture shifted in a way that none would have imagined possible. The power of one life. And he tells us that that same resurrection power lives and dwells in every single one of his children. Who can tell where the ripples of your life will go? You can make a difference. You will make a difference. And the story of your life will matter for many, many, many people whom you will never even meet this side of heaven. Jesus showed us what the power of one life can do and has called us to make a difference. Would you guys pray with me? Father, what we are 
hoping for is that you would take each of us and do the thing that only you can do in our hearts. Help us to evaluate who we are and where we're at, the kinds of people that we are becoming and who we really want to become. I'm asking, Lord, that you would meet each person individually right here in these moments. We're going to be going to the Lord's table. We're going to be singing some songs. And what we want, Lord, is for you to do a work in our hearts. Open them up, Lord. Draw us into your grand plan. Help us to reorder our priorities, to surrender ourselves fully and completely to you so that we will go wherever you send us, that we will do whatever you ask, so that we might become a group of people, individuals, together, working as one, to live for the common good. We pray it all in Christ's name.